Let's uh, pray before we read this passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have uh, spoken to us so clearly by your word. Uh, We pray now that you'll help us to be good listeners. Give us ears to hear, give us minds to grapple with your word and understand it. And soften our hearts so that we might respond to it in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by uh, asking you a question to think about, which is, uh, who would you say is the greatest person in the world today? Who's the greatest? Uh, For some reason, boxers like to claim that they're the greatest people in the world. Muhammad Ali used to say I'm the greatest. And then uh, Anthony Mundine was Australia's own, I am the greatest. I think maybe Muhammad Ali might have been a little bit better at boxing than, uh, than Anthony Mundine. But who, who could say that truly now? You're probably thinking, well, it depends. It depends what you mean by greatness. It sort of says something about Australians that when we think of our top greatest 100 people, there's sportsmen everywhere. Uh, do you define greatness by physical prowess? Is it how much money a person has? Is it their ability to influence other people? Is it their power that they hold? Uh, Or is it something more altruistic? Is the greatest person in the world the one who helps the most people? Who do you think is the greatest? I'd be interested where your minds went when I asked that question. Uh, Because this was a big issue for the 12 disciples. The question they ask at the start of today's passage is not the only time when you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John where they come up with this question of who is the greatest. They ask it over and over again. Because by this time where we're up to, they'd worked out Jesus was God's son. They'd worked out that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember a few weeks ago, Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. They'd worked out that Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God, that he was bringing the kingdom of heaven. And so they came to Jesus with this question about greatness in that kingdom. Look at verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if you're someone who's very charitable, uh, you might think they're sort of asking an academic question at this point, that they're wanting to know from Jesus. Is it, is it Moses? Is it Abraham? Is it David, one of the great Old Testament heroes? Or will it be perhaps, you know, the preacher who grows the biggest church? Or will it be the evangelist who shares the gospel with the most people? The thing is, though, this was not an innocent question that they were asking. They were asking about themselves. Because as I say, this question came up a lot through the four gospels. They often argued about this. They were Jesus' closest followers. And so they're thinking, well, surely we get the special spots in the kingdom of heaven. Surely we will be the ones people say are the greatest. They want to know which of them in particular would sit next to Jesus in the kingdom. I love how one of the other times this question came up, it was actually one of their mothers who asked Jesus who would be the greatest. I love that because it's very true. Mothers are very uh, ambitious for their children. Uh, But here they're asking the question themselves, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' answer turns their way of thinking and our way of thinking about greatness on its head. So the first point is Jesus says, true greatness is humility. And this is verses 1 to 4. So look with me at verse 2. It says, then he called a child to him and had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we go too far, do you notice how Jesus changes their question a bit? Do you notice and see how massive this is? Jesus doesn't just talk about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. He talks about even being in the kingdom of heaven. It's like he's saying, you disciples, don't worry about which one of you is the greatest. Worry about who's going to be there. And what do you need to enter the kingdom of heaven? According to Jesus, what is greatness in God's kingdom? Well, he says you need to be converted. 
That is, you need a total change, a 180-degree change, and you need to become like a little child. So what does that mean, to become like a little child? Well, it's not talking about innocence or, or purity or something like that, which is what some people try to say. Although I always find the people who say that are people who obviously have never spent any time with children. So you only have to mind a two-year-old for 15 minutes, and you know we are sinners from the moment we are born. You do not need to teach a child selfishness. It comes naturally. And no, what it's talking about is the humble status of a little child. See, in that culture, like most cultures throughout time, children were irrelevant. Children were ignored. Uh, They were to be seen and not heard. A child had no status to take pride in, no position in society. And that meant they were totally dependent totally dependent on their parents for everything they received and that is what Jesus is calling on us to become he's saying you need to set aside all your pride you need to set aside your trust in yourself set aside caring about what status you have and humble yourself like a little child look at verse 4 therefore whoever humbles himself like this child this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and of course that there is the essence of what it is to become a Christian. In that verse there, you see the essence of what it is to become a Christian. The Christian does not come to God saying, look at what I've done to earn a place in your kingdom, you must let me in. Uh, Or even look at me, I'm not as bad as that guy over there, uh, so you should let me into your kingdom and not let him in. No, the essence of what it is to be a Christian is to come to God saying, I am a terrible sinner. I have nothing to offer you. I am the least, not the greatest. I have no right to your love, no right to a place in your kingdom. In fact, even the so-called good things I do, I never do them with pure motives. I always have mixed motives driven by selfishness and pride. I have nothing to bring except my sin and my guilt. And so the Christian humbly asks God for forgiveness. I just humbly trust in the death of Jesus on my behalf to pay the price for my sin. It's like we say in the the great hymn we sing all the time, Rock of Ages, you know, the one where it says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That is the essence of what it is to be a Christian. Someone who comes to God in humility, like a child, and receives God's love and forgiveness. But that is not just how we become a Christian It's how we then live the Christian life. You see, it's not like you become a Christian by humbling yourself and then it's something different as you live as a Christian. No, it's the essence of living as a Christian too. Humility, and I'm not talking about that false eye, it was nothing type of humility we're very good at. I'm talking about genuinely putting other people above yourself. Genuinely considering other people more important, higher than yourself. That is the mark of true Christian godliness. Humility is the mark of true greatness in the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure you all know Philippians 2. Hopefully we get the right passage on this one. Philippians 2, it'll come up on the screen. Look at what it says from verse 3. It says, talking to Christians, it says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. That's what it is to live as a godly Christian. It's to put others, consider others above yourself. And why and how do we do that? Well, look at verse 5. No, back one, Tom. Yep. It says, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. And then next slide. 
who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. See, if we follow the example of Christ, we humble ourselves for the sake of others. So who will be in the kingdom of heaven? Only people who truly humble themselves and admit their sin and their need for God's forgiveness. And who then will be great in the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's people who follow the example of Jesus. It's people who give up their own rights to love others. It's people who serve rather than waiting for others to serve them. It's people who give of themselves so that other people will be encouraged and built up to keep trusting in Jesus. And that means that the great person in the kingdom of heaven will often be the person who the world thinks is insignificant. In fact, it's not always the case, but generally if the world thinks someone is great, they will not be great in the kingdom of heaven. Because generally it's the person who the world thinks is foolish and unimpressive who is great in the kingdom because the world does not value humility. People who the world thinks are wasting their lives will be great in the kingdom of heaven. That's who will be great. So if you want to strive for greatness, follow the example of Christ. Well, having made that point, that we need to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus picks up on that idea that we are his little children. And so he runs with that and he starts calling us that. And that leads us into his next point, which is verses 5 to 9. And I've given it the heading, the worst thing you can do. So I asked you before to think about who is greatest in the world. Now I want to ask you, what is the worst thing you can do? But actually, I don't want you to think on that too long. It's probably unhelpful. But what is the worst thing you can do? Well, Jesus tells us here. He says, well, if humbling yourself before God is the greatest thing, what's the worst thing? Well, he starts off with a positive. Come to verse 5. He says, and whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. He's not talking about the little kid. He's talking about any disciple. If you welcome a disciple of mine in my name, you welcome me. Now, this is so important, yet it's amazing how many so-called Christians don't get it. Our response to Jesus, our attitude to Jesus is shown in how we treat his little ones. That is, it's how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. We just know this is, this is true in normal life, don't we? You know, if you invited me over and you said, hey, welcome, Phil, but you'll have to leave the kids in the car, you're not really welcoming me. I might appreciate that at times. But, you see, that's what it's saying here. You, you cannot love Jesus and then say, I don't love his other kids. I, you cannot love Jesus and not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. The rest of the New Testament actually expands that little verse out into chapters of material. This is why we're called on to love one another. This is why we're, we're called on to be devoted to meeting together. This is why we're, we're called on to use our gifts to serve one another. Here it's crystallized into this simple point. When you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you love Jesus. But here, Jesus is really moving on to stress the other side of the coin. So if you love me, you'll love my little ones. But that also means... Woe to you, woe to you if you fail to love my little ones. Woe to you if you hurt my little ones. Look at verse 6. It says, but whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, 
It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offences, for offences must come. But woe to that man by whom the offence comes. See, we expect the world to reject Jesus' little ones because they rejected Jesus. That's the point of verse 7. We expect the world to make it hard to follow Jesus. We expect the world to mock our faith, to seek to encourage us to sin. But woe to the person who calls themselves a Christian and does that. Literally there, it's whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble. And in the context of verse 5, I think it's particularly meaning if you fail to welcome another follower of Jesus. If you reject another follower of Jesus, if you ignore them, if you spurn them, that's what Jesus is talking about. And that will then potentially lead them to stumble. But that then also extends to if we cause someone else to sin in any way. And at its worst, if we lead them to stop trusting in Jesus. Jesus is saying, woe to the person who does not welcome their brothers and sisters in Christ but instead rejects them. Woe to the person who, who leads a brother, and sister, a brother or sister in Christ into sin. And in particular, woe to the person who damages the faith of one of these little ones. Can you see why this is the worst thing you can possibly do? Because you are leading that person away from salvation. The worst thing you can do is lead a person away from Jesus, away from heaven, if you like, towards hell. It's the worst thing you can do. And so Jesus says, it would be better for you to have a 100 kilogram concrete block. That's what a millstone was. A 100 kilogram block tied around your neck and be thrown in the sea. That would be better for you than to do this. You would be better off having died like that beforehand than lived and done this. Do you see how serious this is? Now we immediately jump to thinking of the false teacher. The, the false preacher or, or the wolf who encourages, gets in the church and encourages Christians away and into sin. Or in particular, we think of the minister who abuses their position to abuse people. And that is true and awful. And people like that will be judged awfully by God. But the world is also littered with people who have been turned away from Christ by the lack of love from ordinary Christians like us by the, the, the way sometimes in churches people have a click that means they come and they want to know Jesus, but they're excluded by the people in that church. Now, praise God, even this is forgiven if we trust in Christ. But please hear the seriousness of this. This is how much Jesus loves these people around you. This is how much Jesus loves every person who walks through that door and says, I want to follow Jesus. And if we love Jesus, we need to make sure we love them like he loves them. And we need to make sure that as far as it's up to us, we never cause them to stumble. But of course, the thing is, just like all these other people around you are Jesus' little ones, you too are one of Jesus' little ones. And so you need to make sure that you don't stumble too. And that's Jesus' point, his famous words in verses 8 and 9. Look there now. He says, if your hand, these are stark words, he says, if your hand or your foot causes your downfall, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye rather than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. 
And Jesus is using exaggeration to make a point. He does not want one-eyed and one-armed people wandering around our church. But do not let that take away from the power of what Jesus is saying. He is saying nothing is more important than that you keep following Jesus. Nothing is more important. Your, your work is not more important than that you keep following Jesus. Your study is not more important than you keep following Nothing is more important than that you keep living for him and his glory. So if there is something that is causing you to stumble, leading you into sin, taking you away from trusting in Jesus, anything, take drastic action to get rid of it. That's what he's saying. And that can be bad things. So generally, when verses like this are preached on, the preacher will talk about pornography or they'll talk about alcohol or some things like that. It can be those things, but it can actually also be indifferent things or even good things that cause us to stumble. Things that are good gifts from God when we receive them with thanksgiving and put in their place. They can become idols that we need to smash, like sport for many Australians, like money, like investments, like homes, like friendship and inclusion in social groups. It's amazing how many people walk away from Jesus because they do not want to lose the friends who do not love Jesus. Jesus' point is, if something is causing you to stumble, deal with it. Take drastic action to get rid of it. And if it is taking you away from devotion to Christ, take drastic action to get rid of it. And as much as Jesus is using what I call hyperbole or exaggeration, Remember, it is literally true. It is literally true that you would be better off entering the kingdom with one eye or one leg or owning nothing or in absolute poverty or, or with no friends in this world. You'd be better off doing that than ending up in hell with a whole body, a load of money and the world loving you. Please get this. Even though it's not calling on you to literally gouge out your eye, it is literally saying it would be better to have done that than end up in hell I want you to think hard now and think practically what are the things that cause you to stumble what are the things that cause you to stumble what are the things that lead you into sin what are the things that draw you away from faith in Jesus what are the things that draw you away from Christian fellowship what are the things that work to tone down your faith in Jesus and remove it from the center deal with them is what Jesus is saying. Deal with them, whatever they are. There is nothing more important than trusting him. But back now to how we treat one another. And as Jesus often does, he now switches to a parable or a story to ram his point home. This is our third and final point, And that is verses 10 to 14. We need to see one another how God sees us. So look at verse 10. He says, see that you don't look down on one of these little ones. Now, I don't think that translation is actually strong enough. The word means despise or treat with contempt. See that you do not treat with contempt one of these little ones. See to it that there are not people in your church. See to it that there are not people here in this building tonight. That's what he's talking about, others of his little ones. See to it that there are not any little ones who you ignore or you, who you don't care about or who you treat beneath you. The thing is, this is hard because church is a family and you don't choose your family. And there will always be people in the church who struggle to love more than other people. But we need to repent of that. We need to repent of that. And we need to love everyone 
of Jesus' little ones. And Jesus gives us two reasons. One's a little hard to work out and one's very clear. The harder one there is, and we'll get the heading, is because of the angels. Whenever you get that in the Bible, you sort of think, I really don't know. It's a struggle to know what's going on when it's because of the angels. But look at verse 10 again. He says, see that you don't look down on one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my father in heaven. I would say whenever angels come from the Bible, we struggle a little bit. And the reality is we just do not have enough information to know exactly what he's talking about here. So some people take this and build this whole idea of personal guardian angels. So every Christian has an equivalent angel who's there in the heavens you know representing you in front of God in some sort of way I I don't think that's what this is talking about other people say the word angel here is referring to a person's spirit when they die and so it's saying don't despise someone whose spirit will get to stand before God in heaven when they die I I think it is talking about angels as we know them but not guardian angels I think it's saying there are angels who take an interest in human affairs and who in some sense represent us before God in heaven but the point is even if we don't fully understand it the point is quite simple if we treat with contempt one of God's little ones we are despising someone who God cares about enough to have them represented in his presence see that is how precious that person sitting next to you is to God and if God thinks they are that important then so should you And that's the point of the little parable from verse 12. So the the next point there, God cares about every individual sheep. Look at verse 12. He says, what do you think? If a man has 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, I assure you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones perish this is a really really simple point Jesus used a similar uh, parable in in Luke's gospel to talk about why we share the gospel with people outside but this is talking about people in the church and he's saying God cares about every individual person here God cares about every one of his sheep and he does not want any of them to perish he does not want any of them to walk away from faith in Jesus And when someone drifts, God will do anything to bring them back. And if that is God's desire for these people sitting around you, it should be ours as well. If God values every person in this church that much, so should we. Look around you now. I know you don't like it when I get you to do this, but look around you now. I know it makes you feel uncomfortable. Look around. I actually want to ask you or invite you to commit to loving these little ones and caring for them like God wants you to. I want you especially to commit to welcoming them and causing them not to stumble. See, this is why we prioritize meeting together, isn't it? This is why Hebrews 10 says, do not give up meeting together because it's as you meet together that you encourage one another to keep trusting Jesus. This is why we humble ourselves. This is why we put one another's needs above our own because God values these little ones so much and so should we. So even though this passage is mainly a warning, you know, the whole millstone around your neck and gouge out your eye, even though it's mainly a warning, it actually gives you a wonderful picture 
of what we want for our church, or actually what God wants for his church. God wants a group of people who view each other the way he views us. That's what he wants. God wants a group of people who love one another the way he loves us, who welcomes one another the way he welcomes us, a group of people who serve one another, a group of people who care more than anything that every other person keeps trusting Jesus. My hope out of tonight is that you'll go away and out of this passage, you might consider what that means for you. You might consider what that means for the way you are committed to these people around you for the way you serve them, for the way you love them, for the way you encourage them to keep trusting in Jesus. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because he is the one who truly humbled himself. He did not consider equality with you something to be grasped but instead gave it up and humbled himself even to the point of death to pay the price for our sins. And so as forgiven sinners, we pray that humility might be our mark as well, that we might be people who truly are like the little child and that we might be people who put the needs of others above our own. And we pray that we might look on each person here and see them the way you do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.